Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. As of today, every alternative energy source requires a fossil fuel to make. Wind turbines are made primarily of steel, and as of today, steel can only be made by using coal. Electric cars require electricity, which is generated mainly from coal. And solar panels, they too also require fossil fuels to make. Today's podcast may not be what we want to hear, but it may be what we need to hear. My next guest believes there is another way to look at this. Instead of finding a solution to sustain our growing population, why don't we address our views and values on increasing our population as a community and do what is best for the children we have? Co-creator of the NGO Fair Start Movement and author of Justice as a Fair Start in Life, Understanding the Right to Have Children, Carter Dillard joins me today to discuss human fertility and how planning our families is probably the quickest way to reduce poverty and bring balance and equality back to every aspect of our society. Welcome, Carter, and thank you for being the change. Thanks, Christina. I appreciate your having me. It's great to have you here today. We have a lot to unpack. And before we do, Carter, can you please explain to listeners what the Fair Start movement is and why you started it? Sure. The Fair Start movement promotes the idea of child-centric family planning. So that if we were going to think about planning our families having children, we would do it thinking about what children need, not necessarily just what we as parents would want. We would think about how we could do things like satisfy children's rights under the Children's Rights Convention, for example. And if we took that child-centric perspective, which is very different than our current perspective of simply having children in a way that satisfies our needs, you know, I want uh, lots of kids, I want a boy, I want a girl, I want to make my parents happy, I don't know why I want kids, I just do. But if we thought of it in terms of their needs, we would be obligated to move into a collective way of thinking about it. So Fair Start simply promotes child-centric family planning. And our belief is that if we focused on children, where we would end up is a collective process of giving all children a fair start in life. And isn't it true that by having more planning when we're thinking of our families, this does mean less is more, right? That we can resolve things that are are huge issues that we're really unpacking today and, and uncovering and looking at, such as inequality, poverty. It's not just the climate. There's crime, basic needs, and even less democracy, like which I found was very interesting. Can you speak on each one of those, please? Sure, of course. Yeah. So we can think about it in terms of population just numbers. We could also just think about population as in terms of people. And we can boil down people's needs if we look at 
systems of human rights, we can boil down people's needs to really a few fundamental values, values like democracy, well-being, equity or equality, and environmental needs or what you might think of as nature. And so when we think about having children or creating people, we might think about how to satisfy these needs. So for example, when we think about having children, if we were to choose smaller families, one child fewer than we otherwise would have, we would have 20 times at least the climate emissions mitigation than we would have if we simply changed the form of electricity we used, if we moved to uh, solar, for example. Why? That's because over a person's lifetime, they have a tremendous impact on the environment, irrespective of the type of energy they may use. So when thinking about having children, we might think about how they'll impact their own environment. And in fact, smaller families have that huge disparity in impact. We might also think about when we're having kids, what are the conditions in which they're born relative to other children? What we know for a fact is that poor children generally become poor adults. Rich kids generally become rich adults. So you're seeding inequity at the very base of the tree when we have children. How could we eliminate that? How could we ensure that poor kids might get things like a government-sponsored trust fund of their own called a baby bond, and that rich kids could help subsidize that through better taxation? We might also think about democracy simply in terms of our democracy ought to feel like a town hall where we are all have some commonality and we're organized in a system where our votes matter. But right now, because of massive population growth and because of the way that we really have not ensured any civic commonality, democracy is kind of a joke. In fact, it's probably illogical, it's probably irrational to vote because your vote has very little impact. That's not to say that we shouldn't vote is simply to say that our vote should not be so diluted in massive systems that we don't really have a meaningful role. And lastly, we, we might think about having children in terms of health and welfare, the impact that has on them. We might be able to have children in conditions where they'll have healthcare systems providing for them. Not all children will have that right. And in fact, if you're creating a world where some children have had these privileges, some kids are born in conditions that are so horrific, they're developing adverse childhood impacts and experiences. The future will be rife with the sort of conflict that we see today because we haven't assured ourselves of those things. So in essence, it's really impossible to separate our values from who we are. And it's impossible to separate who we are from the conditions in which we are created and raised. And so Fair Start urges us to recognize that rather than just assuming having children is something we could decide to do without regard for others. We have to change to think about it as the most important decision we can make in terms of how it'll define the future. You know, I have a 14-year-old son. I have one son who I had um, at the age of 38. So I waited. And before I we were doing this episode, I pulled a lot of friends. I pulled a lot of listeners on if you decided to have children or not have children, what was that deciding factor, right? Not many said it was the environment or it was, you know, thinking of the future of other people's children. It usually was a very selfish answer, right? For me at 38, I knew that that clock, you know, that window was closing, right? And 
I mean, I'm being honest with you. It was like, I can't imagine, I don't want to miss out on this experience. It was more about an experience versus, you know, the world. And so I'm just wondering, it's not that I'm not all in with you on this, but how do we get society to look at it in a non-selfish way? And, you know, and also a non-sexual way. There's a lot of people who have kids because it's a sign actually of wealth or, Mm -hmm. or fertility, or there's many cultural reasons, right? How do we get everyone on board, all 7 billion of us? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a great question. I think we are apt to think about having children for all these myriad reasons, all these personal reasons. Really, that paradigm is not an accident. There is a universal norm promoted by governments, businesses, and media that the act of having children really is a personal private decision in a way that hides the impacts that it has on others. So I think one way we can start to change the arc of the way we think about having children is by questioning that norm. And we can do it through a couple different mechanisms. One is, I think we can really question whether it's okay that some children are born rich and poor. We can bring equity into the conversation and think that if we're going to distribute wealth to try to level the playing field between adults, why don't we start with doing it between children? Because quite frankly, inequality is a great part of the conversation today. And driving that question about rich kids and poor kids can make people think beyond themselves when having children. We can look at things like changing the tax code so that the child tax credit could incentivize better family planning. We could use it as a way to delay people having children so that they're more ready. And that could be a way to, to change the conversation. People will say, well, we really can't interfere with the decision people will have. I think we could look at extreme cases where parents have been convicted of felony child abuse and ask ourselves, the children these parents would have, let's say that they're on probation or parole, are going to simply end up in a failing child care state foster system or child care intervention system. Is that something we would think is the right thing to do? Or would incentivizing those parents to not have children in those conditions, wouldn't that be the right thing to do? So I think there are stories we can tell about inequality, about child abuse, about impact on the environment that can start to change the way we think about it from something that's personal to its true nature, which is something that's interpersonal. Well, many would say when going back to the topic of crime or someone that has a consistent record of going in jail or child abuse, that it started from their own childhood, right? And that was passed down. And that what indeed we need is more social systems, you know, and help and protection that would stop that cycle and break that cycle versus saying something such as like, maybe that person shouldn't have children is quite controversial, yeah? I think it's a great point that I just don't know how you would intervene to prevent adverse childhood experiences without changing the way that we have children, because it it requires a cooperative agreement, I think, between people that want to have children and systems of power that can afford to change those children's environment. And so I do think the first step comes with government and changing the power structure. Government's the ones that's first obligated to make the change. So for example, one change we might look at, Republicans certainly the Trump administration, all had always been talking about increasing the child tax credit across the board and including for very wealthy families, even couples that make up to $400,000 a year, 
because they wanted to address the decrease in fertility rates, people having fewer children. And they wanted to address that because they're worried about the impact on the economy. But one thing we might do is, is ask, you know, why are we paying rich people to have children instead of taking that money and investing it in the poorest kids? That would address some of the conditions that you're talking about. And it would do it in a way that would be just. I don't think we should pay people that make $400,000 a year, any kind of tax credit. They don't yeah. need the money. Yeah. yeah. It's a rabbit hole, Carter. So yeah. when I was preparing for this interview, you know, I just found myself like you would go and then, because you just, you mentioned capitalism, right? So our basic structure of our economic structure is based on people purchasing things and having more people. And I spoke with a girlfriend who's actually, she's born in Singapore and her concept of this, she's my age. They had a, a limit on, there's only two kids. That was it. And then because there wasn't enough consumer activity, they let that go. And so it's kind of like we're the puppets, really. It's true. I mean, the facts are irrefutable that the system that was created, a family planning system that encouraged growth as a means of growing economies was unsustainable. Secondly, that unsustainability put costs on the most vulnerable future generations that are going to experience the worst of the climate crisis. And quite frankly, the poor, who we just assumed if you're born rich that's, or born poor, that's some sort of fortune, hand of God, which is nonsense. It's a system that lets poor kids be born into poor conditions rather than paying for equity. Thirdly, that money that was made, you can imagine a big bubble of wealth in the last half of the 20th century moving into the 21st century, all of that wealth went to the top. It went to the mm-hmm. top 10%, whatever percentage you want to use of the wealth pyramid, rather than being invested in future generations. So I think those three facts are irrefutable, that we had an unsustainable system that hurt the most vulnerable and that benefited people at the top. And I don't think most people, if they thought about it, would think that taking that money from the top and redistributing it to encourage better family planning would be a bad thing, especially if we could point to the fact that doing so would have 20 times the impact on climate crisis, multiple impact on inequity relative to redistributing between adults, improving our democratic process because you're investing in people to give them a voice in their democracy and not just make them another shopper in a shopping mall. The numbers are clear, but as you said, there are a lot of personal feelings and stories associated with this that don't travel with other policy reforms that make this very difficult. Do you think it would levelize the playing field, honestly, by we had smaller families that those in control would be less in control? And because it does seem as if, you know, they're already controlling, you know, in Singapore, China, you know, lifting or, and this is a world issue. This isn't just a, a United States issue that if we all got on board and did this, would we actually have more power? Well, irrefutably in some ways, because remember, in any democracy, which are really representative democracy, right, you're represented by president, congressional representative sort of people, the smaller the democracies are, the more those people actually represent you in terms of the structure of power. It doesn't always work out that way in practice, especially if, if the smaller families are able to invest more in education and the development of civic qualities people are going to be more responsible for their democracies, you'll probably have better outcomes. Certainly, in terms of the ratio, it's, it's more representative. And if the money comes from the top in order to make that investment, 
you're essentially disempowering people at the top who now control through their wealth. And by disempowering those people and empowering future generations, that's the essence of building democracy. There's nothing that's more fundamentally democratic than that. So I, I do think it would have that impact. Now, do you think that they would start, so those at the top, right, who are now, you know, and already I listened in on a conversation yesterday that the Jeffrey Sachs had at uh, Columbia, if you're familiar with his. Sure do, yeah. Yeah. And it was discussing the carbon tax and there was many presentations given. And the main thing is, is that these corporations are already dodging the ways, like they're buying tax credits for the carbon and then they're reusing them and it's it's already being manipulated. And who's to say that this wouldn't be, you know, I was looking at it and I looked at Bill Gates, he has three kids and yet he preaches, you know, a smaller population. So he's already manipulating that. Granted, his kids are in his 20s and so maybe he just became woke to the fact 10 years ago, but how do you stop that? Because it always feels like there's always corruption. And yep. then the, the people who are then having less, they're now having less kids and there's less of the people and yep. more of the monarchy or whatever, right? No, I think you sort of hit it in the head. You say, would we have to worry about the system becoming corrupt? The special thing about family planning mm-hmm. is that's the we in your statement. It's not just that we're going to set up a family planning system. It's going to change who the we would be in the future. We're actually changing the underlying driver of democracy, which is the people themselves. And that sounds like, well, that's a good idea, but why wouldn't that be what we're doing already? And the answer is we're doing the opposite. If you read any newspaper and you scan for discussion about fertility rates, about the fact that there's a sea change in the way that younger generations are thinking about having children, in fact, across the board, Worldwide, really, people are having many fewer children. Mm-hmm. There's alarm because we view that as a threat to the economic system. Mm-hmm. We call it baby bust. But there's something odd about that because that implies that we should be people designed for something like a shopping mall, right? an economic system. That's wrong because, in fact, if we believe in democracy, we should be people designed for something like a town hall, very different people than we are now, fewer in number, much more in common much higher levels of education and development and commonality. And so we're talking about sort of changing things at such a fundamental level that the idea that, well, any system we create is automatically corrupted, I don't think we could assume that. I think we're talking about a a fundamental change that could resolve a lot of the concerns about corruption because each citizen has enough of a role and enough education and development that the system actually functions. Right now, if we admit that we're trying to create people for shopping malls, we're already admitting that our system is fundamentally corrupt and that we're economic in nature, not democratic in nature. Sure. I feel like there's acceptance, though, to the fact that everything's corrupt. And then it gets weird. Um, (laughs) Right? So when, you know, there is this widespread belief that everything is corrupt and then people start doing weird things like not taking the vaccine because then they think that's a way of control. Correct. When in fact, they already are being controlled by many other factors that they're not looking at. And so I wonder with that too, that was one of my big things. Like we can't even get people to take a vaccine for the greater good. How do you see yourself implementing this, Carter? And I, I think that the vaccine proves the point that 
let's say we're all in a town hall and people say there's a pandemic breaking out. We have scientists here that think that this vaccine is a solution. If the system's working, we hear that and understand, and there's some understanding about how science works. The town hall has gotten so crowded, so filled with people without high, sufficient levels of education that you go in and it's chaos. So what do we do? We go off on our own and make our own decisions. Like, I don't believe in the vaccine. That is a direct result of our family planning systems because we don't believe that there's a unified we. How would we get people to change? Well, the good news is people are changing already, right? Smaller families, delayed families are the norm. Governments are struggling to try to reverse that by paying people. So one thing we can do is simply clip government's wings and say, doing that's a violation of children's right to a fair start in life. You're not going to pay anyone to have children unless you assured yourself and ourselves of the conditions in which that child will be born would be fair, equitable, and sustainable. In one sense, we're winning. <laughs> we have to push back against government and business that's trying to reverse that trend. And I think the way we do it is simply through incentives. We know for sure people will make better family planning decisions if they're financially incentivized to do so. And this bubble of wealth that we talked about passing through the, the second half of the 20th century into this century, that wealth should be used for the t- sort of family planning interventions that we're talking about. So I think that, again, eliminating the child tax credit for people making even over 150000 a year and tripling those payments in an incentive for people to have smaller and well-planned families, that would work. It's only a matter of redistributing the wealth. And that's, I would say, as the disparity gets greater and greater between the wealthy and the poor, that redistribution is inevitable. We just want it to be used in a way that's ecologically and socially effective. And you will do this by lobbying? Yeah, so we have a campaign we call United America Plant Campaign, which urges the Biden administration to change the child tax credit system in the way that we're talking about. We have been urging the United Nations to drop parent-focused, growth-based family planning and, in fact, implement fair start as the correct interpretation of the right to have children under international law. We've got state ballot measures that, if funded, would institute every child's right to an eco-social fair start in life as the first human right within state constitutions. There are about a dozen other methods that we're using to promote this idea that children deserve a fair start in life. Everything from any time a nonprofit says that they're accomplishing their mission we ask them to factor in family planning. They end up probably having to change their family planning trajectory a little bit. So there are lots of ways. We just filed a complaint before the UN Human Rights Council. Very simple complaint. Filed on behalf of two women who are concerned about having even their first child because of the climate crisis, the impact the crisis would have on their, their children. And our complaint's very simple. It says, right now, the UN's interpreting the right to have children with Absolutely no limitations. You can have eight children in horrible conditions, no obligation to distribute between rich and poor. What that did is it meant that people having children in 1960 essentially robbed from people today who want to have children because they had so many. Mm -hmm. The right was interpreted in a way that disfavored future generations. And our complaint simply says, the UN was obligated to interpret the right in a way that protected people in 1960 
in 2060 and in 2160 for that matter. They didn't do it. And so we're calling on the UN Human Rights Council to issue a new interpretation that protects the right intergenerationally. And there, there are about 10 other interventions that we're using. But again, I think the good news is that we're probably headed in the right direction. It's just a matter of targeting the systems of in government and in corporations, the system of wealth that are pushing back, trying to get people to create as many consumers, workers, and taxpayers as possible. Well, that's what I wonder. So then you'll be able to actually break through that system and have them, you know, the people who are essentially creating this mm-hmm. to admit that they're wrong and go the other direction and actually work for the people. And I have to wonder if that can happen and, and how. But that's with anything. That's what we're fighting with. That's what the whole climate fight, that's with everything. You know, it's not just this. I know that. I had the chance to uh, lecture was given by a woman by the name of Alice Friedman, and she spent 20 years of her life, she's an analyst, looking at all the, the climate solutions. And it was sobering. And she had said at the end of it, she said, you know, I looked at 20 years of research and what everyone's doing and going into sustainability because, you, you know, everyone's getting these sound offs like it's like the solar is going to do it or, you know, we need more wind and it's all going in all these directions. Right. And she said mm-hmm. that in all the analysis that there isn't enough time for that yeah. and that it's going to come down to rationing. And it's also going to come down to less people yeah. and that she sees in the future a very large tax credit if you go above two children, right? I mean, not tax credit, but um, tax penalty reverse. Yeah. Yeah. You get taxed heavily for each additional child. And so I wonder, you know, I wonder if humans are able to do this on their own and governments for that matter, if they're actually able to stand up and take control and do what's best for the population, but probably not the popular decision. It is the problem in some ways that we decades of not so great family planning didn't create a society capable of dealing with this threat. But I think one way to think about this is if you were going to protect, wanted to protect the majority of the most vulnerable entities you could think of, like what could you do the most? The biggest intervention you could have is through better family planning, through parents that are delaying until they're ready, through redistribution of wealth to give kids a fair start. It's not okay to assume that some magical God makes some kids poor and some kids rich. That's us doing that. An ethic of smaller families. And smaller can also just mean delayed. And I think today, as, as people understand that mostly women were put upon and robbed of their autonomy with this assumption that women were just mothers in waiting, as that changes and people are enjoying their 20s, uh, early 30s before even having their first child, you're having a smaller family because of the delay. So I think there is a way to move the needle. We did a little, we had one pretty good success in interacting with the royal family. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry came out, said they were only having two children for ecological reasons. We'd like them to move to the other pieces, equity and democracy. But for now, the ecological is a good start. And I think celebrity interventions like that, tax interventions, discussions about what it means for children to be born into abusive households, the difference between rich and poor kids and what they can expect in life. These are tough conversations, but having them can change the discourse. And as you saw, you really see it, Christine, you are seen as a puppet by systems that want more people so that they can make more things. 
That is the antithesis of democracy. So we have to, to be blunt, we have to target people talking about baby bus and urging women to have more and more kids because those people are not part of our democracy. They're a threat to it. And we have to be calling them out the way we call out anti-vaxxers. They are a threat. Yeah. It's difficult in the sense that there is a lot of unhappiness and, gosh, you know, (laughs) there's so much. I mean, we really are living in revolutionary times, right? Mm -hmm. And people go to, I see a lot of, purchases, even in my own, even though mine may be like I'm buying a resale item, something that's already been used, but I'm still buying it, you know, for that pleasure and what that looks like. And I think people experienced a little bit of that. And now we're talking about Christmas coming up and all this stuff that's going to be delayed and whatever, and Christmas isn't going to happen. And, you know, what really is Christmas? And it's a change in consciousness that we're all going through. And I can Mm -hmm. see that this is definitely a part of it, Carter. And really addressing what our participation is in this, in this planet. No, that's right. And you can, and again, I think that thinking of things in terms of town hall versus shopping mall make a lot of sense. I mean, if we have gotten so big and such a lack of common ground between people that we no longer could see ourselves as in a town hall, we might look for meaning in things like consumption. We might look for things to fulfill us because our communities have essentially exploded and don't feel like communities anymore. And our, I think the question is, do we want to foist that condition on future generations and on our children? Yeah. And I, you know, I come back, the reason that we started Fair Start, we learned a lot about population studies, everything that was going on. But what we, in the end, we believed was that people having children, people that have children, would go far to protect those kids. And if we could just show them that the way to protect their children's future was by filling that future with yeah. people who were better prepared, that they would go far to do a lot against the people that threatened those kids. And we feel that that's only growing as the disparity in wealth grows, as the climate crisis deepens, that people will go far uh, yeah. to protect their children through changing the system. Yeah, definitely. And I think that calling for community, people realize that they are missing something you know, that intimacy of community and that gathering, things that a lot of us had in our childhood that no longer exist, you know, everyone's in front of a screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, I wanted to address one thing, which how have you looked at or how do you, um, I guess, trigger and bring up trauma for those communities that have you know, whose ancestors have were murdered and in, in genocide and gone through that. And the idea of decreasing their population will probably, you know, such as Native Americans or those, you know, in the Holocaust will bring up a lot of trauma. How do you dis- have that discussion? Yeah. So without getting too much into the weeds, the book and the, the theory that we're using, I questioned before whether we could really see the United States as a town hall anymore, or even New York, certainly even you know, New York City. The idea being that we want, and I think we have to accept there's probably universal desire for democracy and self-determination. Those communities that were targeted in the past, that was done in a way that was violating people's right to self-determination, violating the autonomy of things like indigenous political societies, the autonomy of countries that were colonized, 
if we want to reverse that process, if you truly want communities to be equal and autonomous, you'll need to invest in children in a way that gives them equity and gives them a voice. So how do you deal with the fact that a particular First Nation of indigenous persons was colonized and robbed? Well, you take money from the wealth of the United States, you claim a first human right to level the playing field for those children, and you help them create a situation where their voice actually matters, where their voice would matter in a democracy where they're small enough to be heard. So yes, charging Bill Gates for every child that he has, using that money to ensure that First Nations children are getting a fair start, that only does what we're talking about. It empowers future generations to build their own democracies. And to me, that's exactly, that's the antithesis of colonization and population control. It's empowering people by investing in them. Well, Carter, so we're we're coming to the end. I could talk to you for a really long time on this and maybe you'll come back and and we can have part two. (laughs) But, you know, I know your work is not without conflict and you're also the senior policy advisor for the Animal League Defense Fund. And uh, so you work on behalf of children and animal rights. So it's obvious you care about all living beings and their welfare. And I have to ask you, what keeps you going and gives you the energy to navigate these challenges? What keeps you getting through them in the morning and you wake up and you say, okay, I can do another day of this and fight the good fight? Yeah, I mean, I think you and I both agreed in the beginning, but we see lives where people are just on the sidelines watching it happen. So part of it is I just don't want to be that kind of person. But I would say the bigger part is seeing small successes, right? When I, 10 years ago, the word vegan was rarely seen. I mean, I I didn't see it very often, except in strange restaurants or the odd product. Now it's almost universal in uh, certainly a lot of urban centers in the United States. So there's progress. And there's a sea change in the way that we're having families. I believe that while the decrease in family size is not quick enough, it's happening. And I think the catalyst is for people to understand we have a right to redistribute wealth to give every kid a fair, equitable start. If we took that qualitative turn and added it into the quantitative smaller family business, I think we'll get there. So the answer to your question is, I, like you, I don't want to be on the sidelines of things that we care about, we all care about. Why not get involved because we care more about child poverty than we do about our next car. We know we do. So why not work on what matters? And also, why don't we look at some of the success? Our government's freaking out about smaller fertility rates, calling it a baby bus. That means we're winning. So feel good about the win. That's what I would say is a driving factor. Great. Great. Carter, please tell us, where can we find and get more information on the Fair Start movement and the Fair Start Act, do you have something that people can sign or is there anything? Is there an Instagram? Tell us. No. Website. So it's very easy. It's fairstartmovement.org. And there is a button immediately when you look at the website, join the coalition for people to submit information. There's also a drop down take action menu with about a dozen actions to take, including things in New York State and in New York City. And so fairstartmovement.org is a great way for people to get involved. And another way is simply just in conversations. What we urge people to do uh, is anytime you're talking about any social issues, push the people you're talking with to talk about the actual people. Say, we want to have a better climate. What do you mean by we? 
we should eliminate inequity. Well, what do you mean by we? Urge people to think about the actual people in their thinking. And that will drive you eventually to think about family planning because the majority of people will exist in the future. Well, Carter, thank you so much for being on today and thank you for being the change. It's been a pleasure. Christine, it's been a pleasure for me and best of luck with your program. Thank you. Take care. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.